Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you, too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka. I want to welcome you to episode 86 of ADHD for Smartass Women. In this episode, I am going to introduce you to Dr. Kristen Nicole. Always a feisty, fiery person in need of a challenge to stay engaged, Kristen went to the Air Force Academy kind of on a whim. (laughs) After graduation, she left for sub-Saharan Africa for a two-year stint in the Peace Corps. Deeply moved by this experience, she then went on to medical school in South Florida with the goal to join the ranks of doctors responding to global humanitarian crises. Kristen went on to do one year of a five-year residency in surgery at a hospital in the Northeast. She is deeply passionate about the influence of lifestyle choices, food, rest, stress management on one's ability to live a happy, productive life. She has a health coaching business called Coach Kristen MD, and in her spare time, she loves tennis, running, and her three dogs. Welcome, Kristen. Did I get all of that right? Tracy, you got it all perfect. Oh, wonderful. So, (laughs) I met Kristen in our Facebook group, ADHD for Smartass Women, and I immediately fell in love with this woman. Look, there are a lot of doctors in our group. Kristen is the one who caught my attention because she was always bending over backward to help people. Someone would post about being severely depressed, and Kristen was posting resources for them. Another woman would be struggling with trauma, and there she was again suggesting her favorite books. At one point, I even saw that you had created a single-page document for a member of our group that was a list of mood-boosting food and supplements. And I've just, I've never seen a doctor care as much as you do. That's so sweet. (laughs) (laughs) So whenever there's some sort of scientific study that I'm not sure I understand, I send it to Kristen first. And what I love the most about you, Kristen, first of all, is if you don't know, you just say, I don't know, but I'm going to go do some research. So you'll be really honest about not knowing, but then you're also so interested (laughs) and always wanting to know more. And it's just never important for you to be right, you know? And you're also, you're so open-minded about new ideas and potential connections. And I suppose that's very ADHD of you. You know, I see a lot of arguments in our group about potential symptom alleviators, things like essential oils or the gut-brain connection. And there are members of our group who just shut these things down as pseudoscience. And I, you know, I, I just always feel like, yes, Maybe we don't have the big giant scientific studies that are done yet in certain areas, but it's really important to question and to want to know more and to, you know, do our own research and pay attention to what might be coming down the pike that isn't quite there. So I just really appreciate that about you, Kristen. Thank you so much for saying all that, Tracy. And um, if I could just have a minute to respond to all that. The first thing like that really caught my attention about what you said was that you fell in love with me in the group. You know, I thought you didn't like me. And the only reason I bring this up is because, you know, I have this habit in my life of 
sort of unintentionally engaging in a negative way with authority figures. So I'm always afraid. So I want to say like the first time that you really influenced me was when I had tried to start an accountability group within your group, which is not allowed. And me being ADHD and never reading the, the manual before jumping into something, I didn't realize it. So I got my little uh, feathers ruffled when I was told that I wasn't allowed to do this. And it wasn't by you. But I messaged you and you responded to me and you were so sweet and kind and compassionate. And I realized like, oh, this isn't the typical authority figure. This is not the type of like authority, like woman, female authority I'm used to dealing with. Like she's actually kind. She's actually genuine. She actually cares. That was like paradigm shifting for me because I, I was at kind of like a fork in the road. And <laughs> Like I said, I kind of had my feathers ruffled. So I could have gone in one of two directions. And like your kindness um, made me want to question some of my beliefs. So I want to just say that. And then the second thing, you say that like I jumped in whenever um, people were struggling and not a lot of doctors do that. Like I've come from a place where like I've had deep, deep suffering in my life. Um, I've struggled so much. Um, sometimes I think, I don't know why. But I've had a lot of like really difficult things happen to me. And I've had a history of like, you know, um, major depression that I've really had to fight my way through my whole life. So when I see someone like floundering and struggling and reaching out in a way that's maybe not the right way or the best way or the most like attractive way, I get it. I've been there. And that's why I wanted to be a doctor. Like when people are suffering, they're not at their best. They're not going to reach out in a way that's most flattering. But, you know, if not for other people doing that, reaching down to me, I never would have gotten like where I've been able to get. And I feel not just that it's like my obligation, but it's my calling to help pull people up out of that. People have such strong influences on other people. And one person that believes in you enough to like reach down, it can have like a life transforming effect. And I think like you, Tracy, are evidence of that in my life right now. And, um, you know, I would love to be that for other people once I get to a point where, <laughs> you know, where I'm in a place to do that. The third thing that you talked about was like so many people, so many people in medicine are very like inside the box in the way that they think. And one thing about my thinking is I've always kind of seen through for lack of like a better word. And simultaneously, I've always put myself into situations where there was a very defined way that one should think. So like at the Air Force Academy, for example, there's a very defined set of beliefs that one must subscribe to and like behave within the um, box of in order to thrive at a place like that. And um, those beliefs are um, not inherent to who I am. Like I'm a peacemaker. I'm a helper. I'm like somebody who wants to heal. I'm a vegetarian because when I was eight years old, my mom told me that hamburgers were... <laughs> were made out of cows and I cried and I stopped eating meat at that point. And um, even now I, I have a very hard time with it. So that's not me, but I was kind of being forced to think in a way that was so anti who I was that it kind of like honed my, my skills at paying attention to where certain beliefs were dictated and where like, I really, really just strongly did not believe what the authorities were telling me. Medicine is the same way, you know, medicine has a very defined and protocolized way of approaching things. You're not allowed to think outside that box in medicine. You are allowed, but you have to be really careful really, really careful. And even if there is an evidence basis for, um, you know, these alternative therapies, and there is, you know, because I've looked into it in the process of like healing myself, even if there is, if the like attending physician, if the people in authority have not heard of it or read about it first, you have to be very, very careful about suggesting it. It's very much a hierarchical kind of institution. And, you know, it's just, it's uh, one of those things where um, I could see through it right away because I know I'd used a lot of the therapies even prior to going into medicine. And so I knew like the efficacy of the alternative stuff. Um, I knew there was validity. I knew there were studies to back it. I knew a lot of times it was more effective than big pharma. And so that's where, you know, that openness 
comes from. To me, I, I see no other way. Well, yes, yesterday, I think it was, I sent you a Cambridge imaging study that seemed to indicate that dopamine dysfunction is not the main cause of ADHD and that the main cause may lie instead in structural differences in gray matter in the brain. And I sent it going, whoa, I mean, I kind of had heard something about that, you know, in the back of my mind, but it was a surprise to me. And I sent it to you. And the first thing you said is, yeah, that kind of makes sense to me. We don't really know what causes ADHD. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, yeah, of course. You know, I'm going to be honest about my limitations here. Right? I'm not a psychiatrist. And so, you know, no one should not follow the directions of their psychiatrist or change anything that they're doing on the basis of like what I'm about to say. But I was fascinated by psychiatry in medical school because I've struggled so much with like a history of trauma, major depression. And I've like just read everything I could get my hands on about how to, you know, treat and fix these things. I was always so resistant to like pharmacologic interventions. And so I sought alternative means of treating myself. I did so very successfully. A combination of like diet change and supplements completely like took me out of like a depression that I had lived since I was five years old. So going into my psych rotation and seeing the exclusive use of pharmacology to treat these disorders, I knew how limited that approach was as I sat and watched it happen day after day after day. It was incredibly frustrating for me. But what I realized as I watched that was, let's take depression as an example. It's thought to be or proposed to be, or the party line is, it's a deficiency of serotonin, right? And so SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they increase serotonin in the brain. And that's why they work, right? That's the party line. But we're finding out more and more that that's not true. That is not the mechanism by which SSRIs like improve depression. We can't tell what they're doing exactly because we do not have sufficient imaging of neurotransmission in the brain to actually know what's happening when someone takes an antidepressant. We don't know. We have no imaging really that like can accurately show us like how much serotonin one has in their brain. We've got kind of like proxies, but the brain is it's the science and the imaging and the lab tests that we have to diagnose these things in the brain. It's in its infancy, you know, yeah, we can get great pictures of the brain with like MRIs and um, CT scans to a point. But, and, you know, there's some of the more questionable things that I haven't looked into enough to, to comment on, like spec scans and things like that. I, I believe there, there could very well be validity. But we just don't know enough about like the multiple factors that interact in order to influence like someone's mood, someone's personality, um, you know. So when you sent me that study, that was my thought was, yeah, okay, well, the party line has been dopamine deficiency. And for the lay person reading a book about it, you're going to get the party line, right? They're not going to tell you all the nuances and all of the like questions because medicine likes a clear party line. They like to like know what causes something. They don't like unknowns. But the truth is always so much more complicated than that in medicine and especially as the brain is concerned. So no, it doesn't surprise me at all that you know, the dopamine deficiency, like hypothesis is not the full story for ADHD. Yeah. And, you know, certainly in our group and, you know, I've, I've actually even gotten emails about it and <laughs> uh -oh. seen posts on Reddit where people are talking about me, you know, that's always so much fun. Oh no! <laughs> and I've seen comments that have been made that, oh, well, and she doesn't believe in medication at all. And that's not true at all. You know, medication has not worked for me, but I have seen it do wonders for other people. My point is simply that don't be, you know, we're all basically science experiments. So if you find that medication isn't working for you, don't go into hyperfocus like I did about medication and keep trying one after another after another. And you, you, you lose sight of who you are and suddenly you're spiraling down. You feel 5,000 times worse than when you started, but you've lost track of that. So my point is simply, you may be one of the 20% that medication doesn't work for, so pay attention to your body. The doctor that is prescribing medication 
does not know more about you and how you feel than you do. You are the expert. So don't just take stuff if your gut is telling you, this is not working for me because you're going to end up like I did, where you're going to be a much bigger mess than when you started. And then it's going to take a couple of years to come down from that. Mm. And, you know, I mean, we've seen women in our group, certainly, where they were diagnosed with all kinds of things, bipolar disorder. I mean, and it was all, it wasn't correct. Mm-hmm. And so they were taking all this medication, lithium, and they were getting worse and worse. And then lo and behold, they discovered that, oh, oops, it's not bipolar disorder. It's actually ADHD. So I just love what you're saying. And I do think that, you know, the medical profession is one of those professions that, You wear that white lab coat and you're God. And the reality of it is, yes, from a science basis, you know a lot more than I do, but you don't know more about me and how I feel and what's going on. Exactly. Exactly. You have to be super careful about choosing your psychiatrist or the person who's going to diagnose and treat your ADHD. You really want to make sure you find someone who takes a functional approach because the evidence is clear on things that contribute to ADHD that are not dopamine deficiency. And I just want to like preface that by saying I take medication and it's remarkably effective for me. I take stimulants. They changed my life, but only on the foundation of all of the other functional medicine things that I had done to set myself up such that the stimulants would work. So I want to know, because I'm sure there are listeners who are saying, what do you mean by functional? So functional or integrative medicine, I consider it like all of those, um, they have their own specific definitions that I can't give you exactly what they are. But to me, I lump them all together in lifestyle changes, dietary changes, supplementation, basically alternative ways of treating things other than stimulants, essentially. Well, and then the flip side to that too is therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, ADHD coaching. I mean, really learning new life skills. I mean, they say all the time that pills don't teach skills. And I see so many women who they go run and get the medication. They're feeling much better, certainly from where they started, but they could feel even better than that if they would learn as much as they can about how their specific ADHD brain works, right? And then build some workarounds for themselves. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I was one of those people who thought that meds was all I needed until I joined your group. And um, in the process of being in like, especially in your AOK course, God, I've realized I was missing like 50%, if not more, of the puzzle and how much my quality of life could improve through like other interventions, like targeted like ADHD coaching, strength-based coaching, so yeah, it really is a multifaceted problem. You can't just throw a stimulant or a non-stimulant, whatever, at ADHD and call yourself cured. You got to address your diet. You've got to address like allergens. You've got to address like stress management, mindfulness. You've got to get coaching if you can. Mindfulness is huge. That was the big one that I I forgot. But yes, absolutely. It's you know it's our thoughts that <laughs> create so much of the anguish. Okay, so let's talk about your ADHD. I want to know when were you diagnosed? So not until I was 30, but it was pretty it's pretty clear in retrospect. Like I was a kid with a lot of problems. <laughs> so tell me, tell me, what were your problems? <laughs> Some of them. I had behavior problems, like at home and at school. I don't even remember what they were at school, but I was always getting sad faces on my report card or on my like daily progress or excuse me, daily progress reports that were sent home. So yeah, behavior problems, which I don't. But did you did Uh you have problems in school actually doing the work, or was it just that you did? I was put in like learning disability classes um, (laughs) when I was like in first grade or something, and then through like some you know very fortuitous and like awesome you know miracle, one of my teachers was like, hey, maybe you know she's she's too smart or something, and she's bored. So at that point, my mom got me tested for like gifted and then they switched me and my academic issues resolved with the exception of the occasional occasional run in with authority figures. (laughs) Even in first grade? Even when I was young, I was like always a target of like the teacher. I don't know what I did, but (laughs) 
Like there was a kid that like bit his own arm and then like accused me of doing it. And the teacher like sided with him, even though I think she knew my mom had to like go in and defend me from one of my teachers who she thought was bullying me. I don't know something about my personality. (laughs) I probably said something like really asinine to her as a kid, because I'm telling you, I always had like this condescension of, of adults. (laughs) (laughs) Of authority. I think so. I just resented being looked at as a child because I felt like I saw through, like I had good intuition. I felt like I could see. Yes. So my son talks about that too. You know, he, <laughs> you know, when he was in, he just graduated from high school, but he would make these comments about, yeah, well, she says this, this, and this, but it's so clear because she does the exact opposite. She could care less, but uh-huh. she's telling you she cares and she mm-hmm. doesn't. <laughs> yep. Yep. And you just want to call bullshit, but you're eight years old. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, behavioral problems at home and at school. Um, But, you know, the academic uh, issues resolved once I was put into like gifted classes because I was more engaged. And pretty much the academics were fine through high school. Like I did pretty well. Wait, let me stop you a second. What about social relationships? Were you calling bullshit on other kids too? (laughs) You know, not really, but I've never really fit in. Mm. I just never felt like I had any real friends. And I had people who thought of me as a good friend, but I never felt like I had people who knew me or understood me. And it always like shocked me when somebody would say I was like their best friend. Cause I'd be like, but you know, I I don't know. I guess I just never felt like I fit in enough or could be transparent enough or real enough with someone to need them in a way that would define them as my best friend. It was always surprising. Yeah, I just don't feel like I fit in anywhere, really, (laughs) except your group. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. Yay. Okay. So you just, so you got through, was high school easy for you? Yeah. Academically, it was. It was. And just on a, so were you one of those kids who was involved in every, you know, sport and activity or did you, did you keep to yourself? Did you run with a big pack? Like what were you like in high school? So in high school, yeah, I played softball, but then when, you know, there was a run in with authority right there, like the coach's daughter joined the team and took my starting position. I was like a shortstop and a third base, took my position away from me. So rather than like riding that out, I quit, you know, because I, I could see very clearly like the dynamic at play there and it made me so angry. But yeah, I played like I was varsity softball since I was a freshman up through junior year until that. But academically, like, you know, I didn't do well in classes that I wasn't interested in. I hated biology, ironically, because I went to med school, but I was just so bored by it back then because I didn't understand the relevance of it to like my life. I think I got like a C in it. But most classes, like the ones that I chose to take, I was, um, I was a really good writer. I loved to read and that got me through a lot of things. Um, I really like reading comprehension got me to a lot of places, but I did. Yeah, I did pretty well academically and I didn't really keep to my, I had a boyfriend (laughs) in high school. His name was Evan and um, yeah, that he was really my social life. Which was good because my parents went through a terrible like breakup during that time. And I think it was like his um, reinforcement of, of me as a person and his support that really was like pivotal in keeping me out of what could have been like a bad place mentally. He was a really wonderful person. He, he was mostly most of my, my social life. So. So then what happened? Like, <laughs> how did you end up at the Air Force? Just one day you decided, oh, this would be something different. You know, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, that about sums it up. We can move on. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So um, after you take the SATs, you know how you get like a, you know, kids back then got a lot of like brochures in the mail. Right. From colleges that were trying to like recruit them. And I did well in the SATs. So I got a brochure in the mail. Most of the brochures were like, you know, UF or like, I don't know, FSU, just state colleges, which basically they looked very boring to me. And then the Air Force Academy of brochure arrived and pictured were people like trekking through the mountains and they're like camouflage with their like, you know, fake guns <laughs> slung over their uh, shoulder, people jumping out of planes, people flying planes. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, that's, that's what I'm doing. And 
no one was really helping me very much through that process. Like if I had been my mother at that time, I would have been like, no, (laughs) you need to apply to a lot more places because you're not going to get in there. But, you know, in my childlike innocence, I didn't know how difficult it was. So I only applied there into one other place. I got waitlisted at the other place. Um, (laughs) So had I not gone to the Air Force Academy, I would have been like in a community college. (laughs) Or not that there's anything wrong with that. But it was just that like the divide there. I still can't believe thinking back number one, that I got in, and number two, that like, I didn't apply more widely in the off chance that I did not get in. But yeah, I went because I was seeking like a thrill. I, I, I needed a challenge. What everyone else was doing looked so dreadfully, nauseatingly boring to me to like, just go live in a dorm and, you know, take some classes. And, you know, I knew like the party culture. I wasn't excited about any of that. I needed, I needed to do something that would keep me engaged and um, jumping out of planes, like sounded like fun. So, so did you get to do that at the air force Academy? I did that. Well, so you get to choose between flying a plane, like learning to fly a plane or learning to jump out of planes. And I chose flying. Um, Yeah. I would too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I did jump out of a plane once and I hated it and I'll never do it again. <laughs> but yeah, it, the Academy was like a lot of fun for me in a lot of ways. Um, so it was, so it was a good choice, do you think, for you? So I think that it was a function of being untreated, ADHD, and dopamine seeking. It was not in line with my ideals or who I am as a person. It was a function of thrill seeking, of being You know, if we want to stick with the party line of ADHD being caused by dopamine deficiency, then it was Mm -hmm. it was a dopamine deficient decision. Okay. yeah, (laughs) I'm glad I did it. But (laughs) so then what? So then we got all was kind of fine at the academy. You know, I was doing fine academically and like. Things were, you know, it was kind of fun to do like the different things that they had you do, go through basic training. We had something called combat survival training that we had to go through. You know, we got to jump out of planes or fly planes. So that was all fun. I bet you had a lot of ADHD peers there. I bet. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) You would have thought I would have found more people I had more in common with, though. You know? (laughs) Yeah. But, um... Then 9-11 happened. And to me, going to the academy was just kind of a fun experiment and like thrill seeking. I didn't foresee ever having to actually do anything military in terms of um, participate in any conflicts. And that sounds like a cop out and kind of is. But my idea was I was going to go to the academy, graduate, serve five years in um, a non-combat position then go on to do other things. But then 9-11 happened and the Academy mobilized itself in support of like the, the war, you know, with Iraq and Afghanistan. And there was all of this like propaganda around what we knew about who had attacked. And I could see through it. It wasn't true, right? Like we kind of like chose an enemy and decided to focus all of our hatred on that enemy. And there was so much more nuance than that. And the Academy is mostly guys, it's 85% men. And it became this like war making, like death celebrating machine where blowing people up was glorified. And to me, that was just nauseating. I went into such a deep depression because I felt so deeply out of alignment with who I was in that setting. And um, it wasn't a choice. It wasn't like conscious. It wasn't like, I think I'll get depressed now because I don't agree with this. It was just like my body, my physiology reacted. I, I couldn't tolerate, like on a, on a very physical level, I could not tolerate being there. What year was that in terms of in your college life? Was that your junior year or? Yeah, it was my junior year. It was near the end. So I really had to kind of like grind through. It was tough. I was very depressed. Did you think about, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to finish here. 
Oh, absolutely. I tried to quit so many times, (laughs) but ultimately I didn't try to quit. I wanted to quit. I would cry and call my mom in like the middle of the night. And she would always say to me, you know, you can't like, you need that degree. That degree is going to open so many doors for you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in retrospect, she was right, but it's like, at what cost, you know, at what cost? Because what that experience taught me was that even if I get invested in something that I don't believe in, I have to stick it out. And Mm -hmm. that has stuck with me through relationships, through lots of bad choices. I don't ever feel that quitting is an option, that just disengaging from a a bad choice is an option. And um, for ADHD years who are so... uh, as you've pointed out, um, so like values driven. And so our brains are so interest driven for me to try to like keep myself in an environment that doesn't suit me. It's very, very destructive on my personality, on my mood. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you graduated from the air force Academy and then. So, and then, so I'm in this depression at the Academy and I see this documentary on doctors without borders. And there was, um, they went in to Rwanda in 1994 and drew the world's attention to the genocide that was happening there, to just like the, the, the murder that was happening in Rwanda. No one in the world wanted to look at it. But Doctors Without Borders was like, you have to pay attention. We have to intervene. We have to do something here. And I was like, that's what I need to do. <laughs> so I was like, I have to go to medical school. I have to become a doctor. Because what other profession can you wake up every day knowing that what you're doing is so clearly with the intention of helping others? That's what I needed. That was who I felt like I was. And it was in such, um, you know, sadly clear uh, contradiction to where I felt like I was at the academy. So what I did was I graduated from the academy and I joined the Peace Corps. <laughs> Were you the only one in your class who did that? Oh, of course. That was an even <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that wasn't like among the options one had. <laughs> like, <laughs> I guess when you walk, they don't announce where you're going next, right? Like you literally don't have that option. Like if you graduate from the academy, you're supposed to serve five years in the military. Well, I was <laughs> I was well known enough <laughs> for my anti uh military or anti that conflict views that I was released from that commitment. Wow. That's not something that happens, but I still wanted to serve. I still needed to like to give back for like what I had been given. It's like in Europe, right? And I think Israel, I know Germany where you have an option when you graduate from college. No, it's high school. You do two years of service and you can either choose the military or you can choose some sort of, you know, social service. Yeah. It's not like that. (laughs) (laughs) It should be though. It should be like, you should get the choice not to like participate in, you know, conflicts that you don't believe in. Now, in order for you to be given a pass there, did that hurt your record at the Air Force Academy? I would say yes, like in a way, because I was depressed and really like when I went to seek help for that, that's when my feelings about what was going on there came out. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember like being actually directly asked, do you want to serve after this? And I said, yes, you know, I've, I've benefited from this education Mm -hmm. and um, I owe it. You know, I, I don't want to escape a debt that I owe. The therapist who was evaluating me saw how how bad that would be for me, and it was in, it was out of my hands. I played no part in the decision making there. He wow. took my answer and he made the decision. He, he released me from that commitment, and um, you know, thank God I wouldn't have survived another five years in that in that environment. That's amazing, amazing. Okay, so then you went to. Sub-Saharan Africa, so Zambia. To where? Sub-Saharan Africa, so a country called Zambia, which I didn't, oh, yeah, know. Yeah. I didn't know where Zambia was or that it existed until uh, I got the invitation in the mail. Yeah, so I in 2006, I moved to Zambia. I went over with 30 other Peace Corps volunteers. We spent about two months like getting language and job-specific training before being dispersed 
individually into small villages all over Zambia. And my village was a, <laughs> I think they thought I was tough because I'd gone to the academy, but my village like spoke no English. <laughs> <laughs> we had no um, electricity, no running water. And we lived alone. Can you imagine like a, like a, you know, a white girl out in the middle of Zambia, like a non-English speaking place without, without roads? Was uh, it just you or did you have someone with you? No, we went out like alone in Zambia. You could go alone. It was a paradigm shifting though, because my job was in, um, it was called community action for health. And my job was to educate the villagers on like malaria prevention, HIV prevention, Mm -hmm. tuberculosis prevention, child health and nutrition. And while I was there, some of the things that I saw were just shocking, shocking in such a sad way to me. I realized that like, this is where I could really make a difference if I had the skills that I needed you know, so went to med school after that. But yeah, one of the things I saw, for example, um, was, gosh, it was so sad. Um, but it always sticks with me. There was a woman who had a baby who was sick with like diarrhea. And that's very common because they don't understand hand washing and other like procedures for sanitizing. Right. So, and they'll give their babies water to drink. That's directly from a stream. They don't filter or boil their water. They don't know better. And then the kids get gastroenteritis and they have like diarrhea and vomiting. And what kills them is not that it's the dehydration. It's because mm-hmm. they can't keep anything down and they become so dehydrated that they die. And there aren't clinics in Zambia that are close enough that a mother with a sick baby can get there. They don't have cars. This woman, it breaks my heart actually um, walked across the border all the way from um, Tanzania and um Sorry, it makes me so sad. By the time she got to like the health center, um, it was too late. And, uh, so the baby just needed fluids and um, she didn't get there in time. And um, the baby died. Oh. Yeah. And it just broke my heart thinking of her like walking all the way back. Um, yeah, without her baby. With oh. her baby. That's the thing. And her baby was dead. And like, she had to take him home. Oh, wait. She, she took the, she had to walk back with the, the dead baby? Yeah. It's not like here, you know, it's not oh. like here where like, there's like a morgue or like, you know, yeah. a proper way. Um, You got to go home and like, you know, bury them properly. And um. It just broke my heart that people suffer so much from highly preventable things. You know, all that baby needed was an IV. Mm -hmm. A bag of saline would have saved that baby's life. And, um, you know, that's kind of what drives me or drove me to go to med school was like, too much suffering in this world is so highly preventable if you can just get enough people, like, to care. So, Kristen... Was that a really positive experience being there, you know, that two years in the Peace Corps? Were you able to ultimately communicate with this, you know, these villagers and make a difference? And how did, how did you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was paradigm shifting because what it made me realize is that, like, you know, we have this mentality, like, we can go in anywhere and, like, fix things, but we can't. Because, like, when I tried to um, teach people, you know, about malaria prevention, First of all, like they don't know about science yet, right? Like they didn't have the benefit of like an education. And so when I s- explained that, you know, if you wash your hands, you can prevent like gastroenteritis and like diarrhea and things like that mother experienced, they didn't get it because to them, like disease is caused by spirits and curses. They have a different paradigm, a different explanation for why things like bad things happen. And so it was paradigm shifting for me in that I realized like we don't all come from the same place and the same set of beliefs. Mm-hmm. And we really have to investigate the beliefs of, of another person before we try to communicate or teach them. You know, it taught me like humility in terms of like, who am I to teach someone? That's, it mm-hmm. also taught me that, you know, mm-hmm. because there are in many ways, I believe that my paradigm is right. 
but in, any, in many ways, I recognize the limitations of having come from my background and not having come from the background that somebody in Africa came from. I'm not saying that like disease is caused by curses, but I am saying that we cannot presume that other people think the same way that we do. And if we really want to communicate with others, we have to investigate like where those differences are before we try to like, before we try to so arrogantly teach. It was a positive experience in that it taught me that, you know, and it also showed me like a big opportunity for people to be helped. And I don't mean like we go in there and change things or dictate how things go. I mean, we go over there, we train their doctors, you know, mm-hmm. we may, we do it in a sustainable way. Band-aids don't work. Handouts work to a point in a crisis. Handouts work, right? How many people are getting like unemployment right now? Yeah. But yeah, they work for a minute and then you have to do something sustainable. You have to teach a man to fish. And it taught me that like, I actually want to be one of those people who responds to crises, but I think that there's a huge need over there for that. You know, I learned a lot. It was, it was a really beautiful experience overall. It was difficult, illuminating, paradigm shifting. So, yeah. Okay. And so from there you went to medical school. Yeah. So from there, when I got back, that's when I started like the application process for med school. And I started med school in um, 2013. I loved it. It was the exact right decision. It's like all of these, like this twists and turns of my life up to that point had helped me define what my values were. And I knew like who I was as a result of everything I'd gone through. I was like convicted. And for that reason, all of a sudden studying biology was easy because I had a real world application for what I was learning. I was like passionate about what I, what I was learning. I was tireless in trying to understand Um, It was never good enough for me to like pass a test. I needed to get it. I needed to get it all. I needed to understand the pathophysiology. I needed to understand the mechanism. I needed to understand rather than memorize. And I didn't realize how different that was from a lot of other people. But it was, you know. And what's so interesting is once you got the big picture, this is the good that I want to do in this world, you were able to do all the other things that you needed to do to get there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There's something about knowing your purpose that Mm -hmm. really just lights you up. And you can do anything then. You can get through those awful parts because suddenly they have new meaning. (laughs) Yeah. And really, you know, to be honest, there weren't that many awful parts in med school. I loved it. I'm pretty sure I had an ulcer because I was so stressed (laughs) out from like never being able to stop studying. But God, I loved it. I loved what I was doing. Because I knew that it was going to have like a tangible correlate in the real world. I was going to be able to apply that knowledge to help someone. And that felt like such a privilege. This is a really long way of actually getting to the ADHD diagnoses, but I think it's so fascinating. And there are so many facets of it that make so much sense if you're talking to someone with an ADHD brain that I just (laughs) wanted you to talk about it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, sure. I was actually diagnosed at age 30, though. So that was when I started med school. Oh, okay. So you started med school. Is that relatively late to start med school? 30? Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. Okay. So tell us what happened. We're getting closer. (laughs) So that's when I was diagnosed and it was by accident. I think it was, it would be pretty clear had I ever been actually properly um, evaluated by like a psychiatrist prior Mm -hmm. to that. But Mm -hmm. what ended up happening was (laughs) my boyfriend at the time, and this was before med school, I'd already gotten in, I was getting prepared to go. My boyfriend at the time, got diagnosed with ADHD and not realizing how one should never do this, by the way, do not follow my example, but he had medication like Adderall or something, I think. And I took one, not understanding that wasn't allowed because I had entered medicine. And um, I like did my taxes for the first time. (laughs) I like sat down and I was like pumped about like doing my taxes and knocking out all the stupid details and the numbers. And I was like, Oh my God. So this is what it's like to be able to sit down and like direct your focus. Um, and so from there I went to the doctor and got the diagnosis and had, have been medicated since, but it changed everything for me. It made me less emotionally reactive, which changed a lot of my relationships. It made me more able to see themes like, you know, I'd always been good, like with intuition and things, but 
it, it gave me the emotional distance from things to be able to call them what they were more easily. It gave me like the self-control to implement some like self-care habits I'd never really successfully been able to implement before, like, you know, proper diet, like supplements that I already knew about. It also like, I really believe that prior to being medicated, I had like a, an addictive relationship with food. Like I had what I really believe was disordered eating. Just very common with ADHD. Yeah. And since the time I was a child, I have needed sugar. It calms me down. Mm -hmm. It's just like my brain has like a higher glucose metabolism. Like I just craved it all the time. And it led to like this really unhealthy um, dynamic of like binging and then starving myself and binging and starving myself. That ended when the medication came into the picture. Because I think, you know, I was really just, I was self-medicating. And in combination with the dietary changes and like the supplements and everything, the medication really just, it put a, it stopped that behavior entirely. I really haven't struggled with it much since at all. So that was a huge thing because anyone who's dealt with like disordered eating knows what a, an energy drain it is on you. You know, like you are obsessed. You're so like all of your mental energy goes to counting calories and, you know, yeah your whole day is determined by what the number on the scale is. And that, that distracts so much from like life, from all the other pursuits that you could be, you know, devoting your energy to. And so for me, like I'm a huge proponent of medication for ADHD um, because of its influence on um, limiting like addictive behaviors. There's a lot of evidence for the fact that medicated people who are treated for ADHD have a much um, lower rate of addiction. It's like 50% less. Yeah. Yeah. It's significant. And, you know, I can attest to that myself. Anything else that has changed since you were diagnosed? Yeah. I think that like, you know, freeing up that energy from like that disordered eating um, really helped me to kind of, there was a lot of shame around that, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that shame kept me involved in toxic situations, like kind of like abusive relationships. And I know this is kind of a touchy subject. I'm pretty much an open book, but <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't really like what, you know, judge me if you will. But I think I had a, a lot more shame then because I felt like I couldn't get this one thing under control, which was my eating. And when like the medication came in and that kind of went out of the picture, I think some of my shame lifted and I was able to disentangle myself from shame-based relationships, like with boyfriends, um, even, even to a point with my family, you know, um, mm -hmm. trauma is a big thing in the backgrounds of people with ADHD. I'm not, um, also in my background. And I think that being medicated, being treated really helped me to recognize and disentangle from some things that were really bad for me. So, you know, I'm hugely in favor of it, but as you said, you really have to listen to your body because I had to go through a series of different medications before I found the one that worked for me without causing like extreme irritability and um, worsening some of my symptoms. So how many different medications did you have to go through? So the first one was Adderall, which was terrible for me. Like immediate release Adderall is the most effective for a lot of people. It was the most effective for me. It also made me like ragingly psychotic. Like it made me like... <laughs> really mean, short-tempered, irritable. I hated the fact that I had to like titrate it and take it like more than once a day because if I took it too late in the day, then I wouldn't sleep. I just didn't like it. Then I tried Vyvanse. That didn't work either. I think I was on too low of a dose. I, I don't know. Then I tried Wellbutrin, mm -hmm. like off-label, high-dose Wellbutrin um, can be used for ADHD. That was somewhat effective, but it wasn't great. And then finally, my deus is like the medication I'm on now. And it's like a triple timed release form of amphetamines so that you're not getting like the massive highs and lows that come with Adderall. It's a sustained release like amphetamine. And that's been like a game changer for me. Me on that versus me on one of the other things. It's, I'm much more effective on this one and much less irritable. I've never heard of that. What is it called? My Deus? Yeah, it's called My Deus. It's like a new medication. Okay. My Deus, like M-Y-D-A-Y-I-S. Okay. 
Yeah, I think a lot of the trouble that people have with stimulants is the up and down. You feel great on the way up, right? When you just take the stimulant and like the neurotransmitters are like kicking in your head. But there's a um, there's a come down on the other end as the neurotransmitters start to be used up in your brain. That's when you feel terrible, irritable, like short tempered. My deus prevents that by being so, so long acting. It also has less addictive potential for that reason. The long half-life. That's really interesting. You know, (laughs) that was your number four. I think I've probably done like 12 and um, I've never tried that one. Hmm. Maybe I should. (laughs) (laughs) Although I have to say wrong. (laughs) Yeah, really. I have this theory that if, and of course, this is probably, you know, all stimulant medications, but if, if you can't take caffeine, you can't take stimulant medication. It just, you know, creates all kinds of anxiety. And I guess it would make sense, right? Because caffeine is a stimulant. So it does have different mechanisms though, Tracy, like caffeine acts on a different set of pathways than stimulants. But you know, what you're saying makes intuitive sense to me. So tell me why that would make a difference if it's on different pathways, it, you would just have different reactions to it? Because um, caffeine affects, I've got to look up the specific pathway and I can get back to you on that if you want, but it does not directly affect the neurotransmission of dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine. That's what amphetamines mm. do. Okay. Caffeine does not directly act on that. So caffeine may be stimulating through a different pathway independent of neuroepinephrine, dopamine, and epinephrine, which basically means like you could react poorly to caffeine, but potentially not poorly to my deus because basically what you're saying is- Because it's a different pathway? Yeah, it's a different pathway. You're overstimulated by caffeine maybe because like that pathway is overactive for you already, you know? But- hmm. That's interesting. Okay. Well, I, I think I want to try it. <laughs> I, I didn't think there was anything left to try, you know? <laughs> Low dose. <laughs> yes. It, well, and that's, I'm a, I'm a slow metabolizer. I'm sure it's because I'm half Japanese, right? And so I literally can take one-tenth the amount of what anybody else can take on anything, frankly. Well, oh, wow. anything to do with the brain, at least. <laughs> so I want to know, Kristen, What are the ADHD traits that you feel are responsible for your successes? So, yeah, I mean, I think to a point like that, if we want to go again with like the the dopamine deficiency hypothesis, which I'm sure there's a lot of truth to that, even if it's not the whole story, Mm -hmm. it's positioned me in such a way that like, I love a challenge. I thrive on a challenge, absent a challenge. I have a very hard time focusing or staying engaged. I think that that's what caused me to go to the Air Force Academy, which ultimately was, you know, was an achievement. I think that's what gave me the bravery to go to Peace Corps. I was not scared at all. I think because my brain was just like, you know, hey, that sounds like it'll increase my dopamine. Let's like move to, you know, a third world country and live alone. Are you combined type? Yeah. Meaning you have some hyperactivity and some inattentive. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Same with medical school. Like I'm never afraid of big challenges because it's almost like my brain is prioritizing, like um, increasing my interest in the form of like, you know, challenge, challenge is stimulating. And so I think it's made me brave. It never even occurs to me to be afraid in situations where a lot of people are. And then I think also the justice sensitivity, you know? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) definitely. I have yet to see that turn into a huge success, but I definitely know that like, it's what drove me to go to medical school. I can't look at the world. I can't see suffering that's preventable and I can't not want to do something about it, especially having been so lucky to be positioned uh, as like an American born with like the opportunity to get the education that would help me to help others. It's a calling, you know, and it's something that, that, that energizes me, that, that drives me, that, that motivates me. It's not an obligation. It's like a, it's a calling, you know? And I think just seeing injustice, um, seeing people being treated unfairly, seeing people not have the access to things that would so um, easily prevent their suffering, it fires me up and it makes me want to do something in a big way. Um, so I think, yeah, the justice sensitivity is a huge, a huge factor in like what's gotten me where I am. So, yeah, I think 
those two things, the hyper focus as well. Like when I'm interested in something, there's nothing that can, <laughs> I need to know every detail. Like I can't, I'm never satisfied with like knowing enough to pass a test. I have to get it. I have to get it all, you know? And I think that like my hyper focus has kicked into, into gear my whole life and things that I've, you know, become good at and it's helped me a lot. So. Hmm. Well, that's a lot of really great things. <laughs> I can relate to all of them. So <laughs> what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? And I know you're still kind of discovering it, but I think you've hit on a lot of good things. Yeah, no, I think that that's the thing is like getting it diagnosed, taking away the shame, participating in groups and forums where you can get validation is so, so important. And then in groups where you can also like get hacks and get like help staying accountable to those hacks, learning the life skills. Once you've got it diagnosed and you've got like a group of people that can like validate and help you, kind of what I'm doing in your group, Tracy, like flipping the switch and realizing that you don't have to live ashamed of what you see as failures and you don't have to try to fit into the mold. You're allowed to break the mold and that kind of makes you awesome. And all of these things that you saw as failures, like seen through another lens, they're massive successes because what makes you different and what makes you feel like you were a failure actually is what makes you passionate and convicted about whatever path that you choose to take from there. Like, I'm not bad because I was different at the Air Force Academy. In fact, I think I'm right. And I think I'm awesome. <laughs> I think that like, Healing people is better than killing people any day, you know? Oh, oh um. my God. I love that. Absolutely. <laughs> and you're the only one that felt that way, obviously, that was there. That's insane. So that makes you so special. Yeah. And you've helped me to like apply a different lens and to see myself differently and to realize like, I don't have to try to shut my mouth about injustice. Like I'm allowed to speak up and it doesn't make me bad. It makes me different from a lot of people, but it's the only true expression of who I am. And when I try not to be that person, the amount of energy I expend trying to be who I'm not makes life very difficult to live. So, I mean, I would say the key to living life successfully is like, you got to take, you know, what you say seriously, one of your first podcasts about a strength approach to ADHD. You got to take that seriously. You have to get help from a professional to help you see things that way. <laughs> Tracy, I think you're the only person doing this right now. I don't know. And this isn't like a, a shameless plug. That, well, I guess it is a shameless plug for your course. Your course has changed my life. Like in the short time that I've known you, you've like really changed my life. And I think that that's the key to living life successfully is having somebody that cares enough and that believes in you enough to take a chance on you and to teach you like what's cool about you. You got to find that person, like a mentor. A mentor is just so key, especially when you haven't had that before in your life. Well, I think so many of us grow up and I swear I didn't tell her to say any of this. That's <laughs> my <it> Lord. <laughs> I'll but the real key <laughs> is that so many women come to me and they really hate their brain and all they do is talk poorly about themselves and their brain. And if you can flip that switch and learn to love your brain and what's special and different about it, oh my gosh, then, you know, all the handcuffs and everything are off and the sky is the limit because you realize that, wow, I really am special. I am different in such a good way. And I, I mean, I see that in you, Kristen, all the time. And I, told you personally that you are the kind of doctor that all of us with ADHD, you know, want to be able to go to because you care so much. You're out of the box. You're not wedded to, okay, these are the rules and this is the way it's going to be. And we know so, you know, just even in our group, all these women who, you know, post all the time about they just had a doctor's appointment and the doctor saying, or the psychiatrist, are you, this is a psychiatrist who's saying this, that you can't possibly have ADHD because you're too smart. You know, <laughs> you can't yeah. possibly have ADHD because you own your own home and you pay taxes. And like, they don't understand that every ADHD brain is different and what we're good at is different. And uh, it, it makes me crazy. So yes. Okay. Last question. And then I'm going to let you go. What is your number one ADHD workaround? So 
for me, first is focus mate, but I've, you've had enough people talk about that before. The second is I have this locking timed box called a kitchen safe that you can find on Amazon. And I am a person who cannot stop scrolling through my phone. Like when it's time to go to bed, like I cannot stop looking at Facebook, Instagram, whatever, anything that could give me like a dopamine hit, especially at night when like the meds have worn off. This box, you put your phone in it or, you know, whatever thing that you're trying not to do, you set a timer on it. The box locks itself and you cannot override that timer. (laughs) (laughs) Not even with a hammer? (laughs) Well, you can break the box. Yeah. But the box is like $70. So you don't want to break the box. And it is worth every penny, every single penny. I need that. Like I need to control my environment in order to like focus and to keep myself on track. Environment is so crucial to me. And the smartphone is like the devil sometimes for me. So that kitchen safe box, oh, I'd recommend it to every single person who has ADHD and is trying to like limit their participation in some activity. And so tell me how you use it. So like, let's say right now I wanted to get something done, like read Well, to me, like the dopamine burst of looking through my phone is always going to be more stimulating than reading a book. So I'll take my phone and I'll put it in that box and I'll set it for an hour and the box locks itself. I can't open it without breaking it. And now I don't have to choose between my phone and a book. I have a book and it's interesting and I like it and I'm happy I did it. That is brilliant. So what you're doing, which so many of us have trouble doing, is making those decisions, right? To have to choose between one thing or the other. So you're just taking that away. Yeah. And if you read the book, Change Anything, it talks about like the sources of influence. You have to control your environment if you want to change anything. You have to consider the cues that are like leading you in the direction of doing behavior you don't want to do and how to limit them. So for the alcoholic, that means you don't buy alcohol. You don't keep it in your house, right? Mm -hmm. For the sugar addict, I try really hard not to buy like sugar. For the phone addict, like I need to put my phone away sometimes. I don't like having that choice and having to exert that much willpower and that much energy to not do something. It's exhausting. So take the choice away. So do you just do it for one hour stints or have you actually put it in there for four hours when you needed to, I don't know, do long form writing or. I've put it away for a full day before. And I found that (laughs) that day I can actually focus. This is pre quarantine, by the way, I can focus on conversations with friends because I'm not constantly thinking. I wonder if my phone is getting alerts. It doesn't matter. It's locked away. I can't look at it. It's made me participate so much more in my life when I've put it away And I'm so much calmer. So I think that there's a lot to be said for like technology. And I also think that it can be potentially very destructive. I'm one of those people who really needs to moderate my use of it. And that helps me significantly. So. I would completely agree with you. I think the smartphone has really made it even more difficult for those of us with ADHD, just because of those little dopamine hits, you know, throughout the day. It's, it's not good. Yeah. Not good. Okay. I think, I'm have- on it, Tracy. <laughs> I think I'm gonna have to get that box. Maybe <laughs> you send me the link and I'll put it in the show notes. Oh yeah, I definitely will. Maybe I could give it to my son. I don't know if he'd do it. <laughs> okay. So Kristen, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I want to know where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what you do, your health coaching business, blah, blah, blah. I'm gonna put it in the show notes. So tell us. Thank you so much. It's um, Coach Kristen MD. So it's just www.coachkristenmd.com, spelled just how it sounds. And Kristen is K R I S T I N? T E N. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I've only written it how many times? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad that I clarified that. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tracy. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what I have for you for this week. As always, you are listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. If you like this episode with Kristen, with a E, please let us know by leaving a review. You know, our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too can discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews really help in that regard. 
One more thing, if you have a comment, a guest you'd like me to interview, or a topic idea for this podcast, you can go to my website at tracyoutsuka.com and leave me an audio message or reach out to me at tracy at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.